Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, August 23rd. Today, Black women authors claiming their place in a mostly white publishing industry, and why the biggest pop group in the world is getting sidelined at this year's VMAs. I have smiled and nodded while well-meaning magazine editors advised me to tone down my allegories and my anger. I didn't. N.K. Jemison is an author. I have gritted my teeth while an established professional writer went on a 10-minute tirade at me, and basically as a proxy for all black people, for mentioning underrepresentation in the sciences. In 2018, Jemison spoke at the Hugo Awards ceremony. I've kept writing even though my first novel, The Killing Moon, was initially rejected on the assumption that only black people would ever possibly want to read the work of a black writer. Jemison is the first black woman ever to win the Hugo Award for science fiction writing. In 2018, she was actually winning for the third time for the final installment in her Broken Earth trilogy. I have raised my voice to talk back over fellow panelists who tried to talk over me about my own damn life. I have fought myself in the little voice inside me that constantly, still, whispers that I should just keep my head down and shut up and let the real writers talk. Jemison is one of the few Black female writers who's had enormous success in a literary genre dominated by white men. I was very good at writing straight white male characters, um, even though I am not myself a straight white guy, um, because I'd read almost nothing but that. Even, like, words used to describe skin color were not a thing that I'd had a lot of exposure to. But Jemison realized that she wanted to change that. The thing that I wanted to do that I wasn't seeing in a lot of my own fiction, though, was just simply showing people like me as actually having a future, um, because that was a thing that science fiction and fantasy generally was not doing. You know, I would read these these stories set, you know, 5,000 years in the future or whatever, and everybody was white or everybody sounded like they were from Iowa um, or whatever. And, you know, it just made you wonder what the hell happened. The Broken Earth trilogy is a fantasy set on a future Earth suffering through a climate catastrophe. Her main protagonist is a middle-aged woman of color. And seeing a character like that in the center of this big, otherworldly narrative feels revolutionary, not just in sci-fi, but also in other genres. My name is Lauren Wilkinson. I am the author of American Spy. Wilkinson's debut novel came out this year. The American spy in the title is a black woman, Marie Mitchell, who becomes an intelligence officer in the 1980s. I read a lot of Le Carre, you know, spy who came in from the cold. You know, the Bond books for sure were very prominent. So they they looked very, very white and male. 
Which didn't make sense to Wilkinson, because the whole point of being a spy is having the ability to blend in and to code switch when necessary. Okay, so let's say that you are like a CIA officer. You you are undercover, probably. Um, you know, if you walk into a room and everyone's like, oh, that's James Bond or oh, that's that spy, then who's going to tell you any secrets? You'd be terrible at your job. <laughs> well, also because so much of especially how you describe being a spy is basically a form of passing, right? That you are in a situation where you are trying to blend in among people, but always extremely concerned that you're going to be kind of found out. And that's potentially dangerous if you're found out. I mean, and that's for me, the parallel of for racial passing and the 20th century, early 20th century in this country, how dangerous it was. But sci-fi and spy novels are not the only genres that have been historically dominated by white writers. My name is Jasmine Guillory, and I'm a romance writer. It feels like it's been a it's been a really hard few years to be a black woman um, in America, and I want to put more joy out there in the world for us. You know, I, I know a lot of black women who have gotten their happy endings. I know a lot of black women who have fell in love, who have, you know, had like wonderful love stories. I want to tell those stories to the world. And so she did in her debut novel, The Wedding Date. Alexa Monroe is the chief of staff to the mayor of Berkeley. She is sort of a short, plus-size black woman. And one of the reasons that she's very surprised that this man asks her to be his date to the wedding is that he is, you know, a, a tall, attractive white doctor from Los Angeles. Why was it important for you to have a black woman represented in the wedding date as, as the core character? If I was going to do this, like, I wanted to write a book about someone who reflected the things that I knew, someone who reflected, like, the world and the good and the bad things that I have lived through and the people I know who have lived through. And it just felt important to me to, to write a character like Alexa. I mean, for me, this is a spy book, but it's secretly just an opportunity to talk about a black woman's feelings for 300 pages, you know? So I assume that it's women who maybe this book will resonate most with, particularly if they've ever tried to navigate, you know, the professional lives and the kind of being told directly and indirectly that they're reaching beyond where they're supposed to. I feel that a lot of women can identify with that. Um, and particularly women, women of color. I don't think that I'm trying to represent anyone in particular, but I think that if black women read it and didn't like it, that would be the group that I would be most upset that I let down. <laughs> but what I think is so important about what you're doing is that it has a sense of familiarity with like with structural oppression and with the ways in which the themes of being an other now in the world today are also applicable in the future. In a lot of science fiction stories, you know, the way that they they choose to to engage with it is by having aliens be oppressed or robots be oppressed or something like that. And meanwhile, the humans in the story are still all white people from Iowa. So, you know, what it comes down to is that the the writers of these 
sort of strange looking oppression stories want to engage with the subject matter, but they're still uncomfortable themselves around actual living people of color or actual living people from diverse backgrounds that are not theirs. So in a lot of cases, they are trying to tackle a subject in allegory that they're not comfortable dealing with in reality. They're not willing to actually engage with it in the, on the level that it kind of needs to be. And they're not willing to engage with the people who are most affected by it. And so, you know, kind of making the, the robots be oppressed or the aliens be oppressed is sort of a cop out in a lot of cases. For Jasmine Guillory, what makes her novels feel fresh and relevant is somewhat of the opposite. The fact that, at least when it comes to romance, structural oppression doesn't have to be front and center in the love lives of Black women. Well, what I think is really interesting about The Wedding Date in particular is is the fact that it depicts an interracial relationship, but it doesn't do it in a way that makes that the core of the narrative. And I just think it's really cool the way that your book talks about the fact that this is an interracial romance and addresses it and doesn't completely gloss over it, but it's not like a core conflict. Right. I mean, I think that was something that was really important to me while writing it, is that I didn't want... You know, I wanted race to be talked about in the book because race is something that I think normal people of color talk about in their daily lives all the time, but not in a like constant oppressive way. Right. It is something that, you know, something comes up, you mention it and then briefly talk about it and move on and talk about other things. And that's how I wanted the conversations about race to be in this book. And I absolutely didn't want like their core conflict to be to be about, you know, oh, no, I am black and you are white. What are we going to do? (laughs) Like, I, I, I don't I don't think that that is. I mean, I know a lot of people who have been in interracial relationships and have been myself. That is never the core conflict. (laughs) What's notable is that Guillory, Jemison, and Wilkinson have all found success in a publishing industry that gets a lot of criticism for its lack of diversity, both in the authors that they publish and also in their own staff. Publishing is still a business that is owned by white men and, you know, the people at the top are all white men. In a 2018 survey of the top romance publishers, only 7.7% of books were written by people of color. Another recent survey of the publishing industry found that 82% of the editorial staff was white. For the longest time throughout my childhood, there were really only like four writers of color. Chip Delaney, Octavia Butler, uh, Nalo Hopkinson, and Stephen Barnes. But, you know, everyone would sort of bring out those four names whenever you wanted to try and point out that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a gap here between what the readership or what, you know, society looks like and what the writership looks like. And so, you know, when you've got such a small number of people and when you've got gatekeepers uh, within the genre actually actively working to try and keep those tiny group of people from growing um, or even trying to keep them from expressing themselves clearly, that's a big part of the problem. I think publishing has always had this idea that like black people don't read books and that black people don't buy books and that therefore what's the point of putting out books that are geared towards them, right? But I think black people have always known that we read a lot of books and we also buy a lot of books. That's why, for a long time, the way that many writers of color were able to make a name for themselves was by self-publishing. And this was especially true for romance writers. 
romance has always been diverse. I think it's only that recently big publishing has started to catch up with that, right? And so it's been really wonderful to see at least a little bit that big publishing is starting to catch up to how diverse romance can be. That there's an audience for it now is exciting for me. You know, that people are like, oh, I, I do want I do want to explore a new world in, in the movies that I watch and the books that I read. Yeah, that that is <laughs> one of the best one of the best things about writing right now in 2019. Do you feel like there still is a resistance to widening representation among publishers, among gatekeepers in publishing? I think we need to just kind of always remember that this is about sales and this is about a product, right? And, you know, and for me, it is art. I did take, and I took a very long, maybe seven years writing this book. So it means a lot to me, but I always knew that it was going to be an object that was going to be placed, positioned somewhere in a market. And I think that there is, right now, people look at products created by people of color and they say, I think we can sell this now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think that, I think we can sell it. And that is a complicated thing. <laughs> That's a complicated way to feel because, you know, when you're like, oh, well, this person thinks they can sell it now because of a trend. You know, what happens when, when you're no longer on trend? That's a scary thing when your identity feels like it's a part of a trend. But I think that those things are built into, built into like our economic system. Do you feel like there has been a moment to celebrate that or that it is still a struggle against the tide? You know, we've made the start of progress. Yay, Black Panther, but that's one movie. Um, you know, we've got several decades of, of film history that uh, we're going to have to work against before we start to approach anywhere near parody, let alone uh, actual equity. So, no, I don't believe we've, we've reached a point where we can celebrate. I think we've reached a point where there are actually enough of us to have a conversation without getting drowned out. Um, that's a long way from celebration. There's a lot of discussion of the fact that, um, you know, there's a big difference between diversity and uh, decolonization. And diversity is a great thing. Um, it's just that it's sort of superficial. You get enough people in the room who look, you know, sound like they're all from different backgrounds and so forth. But if the people who are taking up all the air in that room are still the same old folks, and if the conversation is still centered on those folks, if all of the heroes look like those folks and so forth, then it doesn't matter what kind of diversity you've got in the room because it's not real practical diversity. Um, so the way to kind of address the issue is not just to look at physically who is in the room, but also to try and make sure that you're you're not following the same patterns and not uh, replicating the same power structures that have caused the problem in the first place. N.K. Jemison is the author of several novels, including the Broken Earth trilogy. Lauren Wilkinson's debut novel is American Spy. Jasmine Guillory's newest novel is called The Wedding Party. And now, one more thing. Be part of the moment as the VMAs go live, Monday, August 26th at 8 on MTV. Duh. About the MTV Video Music Awards on Monday and why the show is being criticized for how it treats some pop musicians. 
BTS is a K-pop band or Korean pop band. They are the biggest, not even talking about boy band, they're the biggest group in the world right now. As of December of last year, they sold over 10 million albums. Their video, Boy With Love, has gotten more than 515 million views since the release in April. That number alone is the populations of U.S., Canada, and Mexico combined. My name is Marian Liu, and I write for an identity newsletter for the Washington Post called About Us. So recently, the VMAs create a new category for K-pop. The head was quoted saying he wanted to represent the diversity of the nominees. But the controversy came because instead of including these K-pop stars in the pop category, they're included only in this K-pop category. So basically, they're segregated out of everybody else. Versus Canadian singer-songwriter Shawn Mendes and Australian group Five Seconds in Summer were both nominated for Artist of the Year and Best Pop. So fans are like, well, why didn't they get Canadian category or Australian category? But when you made them separate and not included, you don't feel you're basically disenfranchising this group, saying that their music is not as good. It's not pop. It's not mainstream. It's separate. This has been historically true for Black and Latin artists, you know, with other labels like Urban. This happened with 2017's Despacito, which was dominated the Latin award categories. The funny thing is recently, maybe in an attempt to be better, the VMAs created three new fan categories, Best Group, Best Power Anthem, and Best Song of the Year. So BTS and another group, Blackpink, were also included in Best Group. And fans were saying that this was kind of a last-minute way to be inclusive and create the hashtag VMAs Desperate. Several people I interviewed said that it's because they don't look the part. When you think of pop music, you're thinking about Caucasian faces. You're not thinking about so many brown, yellow, black. But the reality is not only the listeners brown, yellow, and black, but the singers are now too. And it's a beautiful thing. And you should represent that. Marion Liu writes for the About Us Race and Identity newsletter at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who wrote our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.